From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A new year and new developments in the pandemic. Today, restrictions ease in a slew of counties just as a COVID mutation is detected. I'll speak with a top infectious disease doctor. Then, pollsters are still coming to grips with their 2020 errors. But one Colorado polling firm says it uses Internet search trends to more accurately forecast results. Later, every punch the pandemic has thrown, Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg's been able to withstand thanks to a hiking trail. As the world was getting crazier, this was a place to get away from it. And a Grammy nod for a Colorado choir director. Singing in and of itself is a really vulnerable activity. We create the sound from within ourselves, and as soon as that sound leaves our bodies, it's subject to criticism. Thank you to everyone who gives to support the work Colorado Public Radio does every day. Thanks to those who support by donating a vehicle, by underwriting, or by making CPR part of their estate plans. And thanks to those who volunteer, who share feedback, and who make CPR an important part of their every day. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio community. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, COVID restrictions ease in a bunch of counties, including some of the most populous. From Denver to Mesa, Larimer to Pueblo, the dial goes to orange, meaning you're, quote, strongly advised to stay at home, end quote. But you can eat inside a restaurant if you want. This easing comes as a more contagious COVID-19 mutation has been detected in Colorado. And, of course, while vaccines are only beginning to roll out. Let's get some perspective from Dr. Michelle Barron, Senior Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control for UC Health. Dr. Barron, welcome back to the program. Good morning, Ryan. So last week, Colorado officials announced a National Guardsman in his 20s who lives in Elbert County tested positive for the nation's first case of this new COVID-19 variant. Uh, It's since been detected in California and Florida. The strain B117 was first detected in the United Kingdom. How different is this new variant from the one that's been circulating for the past nine months? I mean, it obviously has some changes to it that are different, which is why it's taken notice. And I think the most important thing about it is the fact that it seems to uh, be a little bit more contagious than the strain that we've been seeing uh, in the last nine months. A little bit more. I've read as high as 70 percent. Put that into some context for us. Yeah, so I think that's a question that everybody would like to understand better. And so I think certainly it seems to spread faster, but it still begs the question of under what conditions. Is this where people were all in small gatherings versus um, just casual contact where maybe you were only chatting with someone for five minutes without a mask? Interesting. We have to be able to separate the circumstances around transmission from the contagiousness of the new strain. It sounds like that's still a work in progress. Like all things COVID, yes. (laughs) You compare this mutation. This is a mutation, right? And you compare it to handwriting. Help us understand this metaphor. 
Yeah, so um, every virus needs to make copies of itself. And when it makes copies of itself, it doesn't have a Xerox machine to be able to do that with. And so literally, it's copying itself like a sentence uh, 100,000 times. And if you make a spelling error somewhere in the way, you're going to probably keep that spelling error moving forward if you didn't notice it, because you're trying to do this as quickly as possible. And that spelling error, in this case, which we consider a mutation, may be significant and change the meaning of the word that you were actually writing, or it could be completely insignificant or nonsensical, and it really doesn't matter. Okay. And in this case, we are still trying to figure out exactly how serious this spelling error, this copy error is. Uh, But it's normal for viruses to mutate. And would we expect then more variants? Absolutely. So this is very common. And so that's actually one of the concerns we have about this and have had all along is that it can change pretty rapidly. And um, whether or not this becomes a predominant strain is something that, again, we worry about. If it's more contagious, then maybe more people get it and then it spreads faster and then it potentially becomes the lead horse, so to speak, if we're looking at a horse race metaphor. As I noted earlier, this new variant first appeared in the United Kingdom. Here's what Dr. Eric France, Colorado's chief medical officer, said about the discovery. It first appeared in the end of September, and it was noted in the southeast part of England that the number of cases was rising quickly in that part of the country. And on further investigation, they found that this new variant seemed to be the dominant form of the COVID virus in that community. So in that part of England, this was the dominant strain. I guess that's a possibility here as well at some point. Yes, absolutely. And I think, again, that's one of the concerns, especially with everyone being fatigued with restrictions and with the requirements of wearing masks and limiting gatherings. I think this could easily overtake uh, the current strain. I am curious if there is anything potentially more deadly about this strain. So it may be more contagious. Do we know anything about its effects on our bodies? That's a great question. And I think right now there's no indication that this particular strain is more deadly or causes more hospitalizations. Although I think, again, some of this is a little bit premature. And I think if we start seeing this in more... um, more commonly throughout the United States, I can't imagine that it won't have some level of impact. But like, again, all things COVID, there's so much variability and everything seems to change. So it could be that if you're younger, this may not have impact. But if you're older, it still may have similar impact as the original strain. Speak to the person who hears this and wants to throw their hands up and thinks, you know, In the face of something that might be more contagious, what what good are masks? What good is social distancing? I'm throwing in the towel. (laughs) Oh, wow. I hope not. (laughs) The good news is that masks, social distancing, and... limiting gatherings works. Like we actually have a very simple way to solve this in terms of limiting its spread. But if you throw in the towel, then we have zero ability to do so. So the point is that if a virus is more contagious, if a version of a virus is more contagious, it might be that a mask does slightly less good than it would for a less contagious virus. But that is no reason to not wear a mask because a mask is still going to do some good for you. 
Actually, the mask does a lot of good. Yeah. And so, again, this is still the primary way of preventing yourself from getting infected or if you're infected from spreading it. And so the masks are still incredibly important. And I would not at all diminish their ability to work, even if this strain is more contagious. I think the contagiousness just allows for that moment of error or the lapses in our our uh practices to sort of jump in and take advantage of that scenario. You mentioned, Dr. Barron, limiting gatherings, but at the same time, we know this new strain to be circulating. And and do you assume, by the way, that this is now widely circulating or do you think this is isolated? No, I think this is widely circulating. I think everybody, when we heard about the discovery in England, pretty much were convinced that it was just a matter of time before we started finding it in the United States. And Colorado happened to be the one that found it first uh, because of really great lab people looking for it. But I think just because it hasn't been reported doesn't mean that it's not there. It's just that labs might be busy doing other things. Okay. So given that, uh, it is against that backdrop that counties that were in the red are allowed to ease their COVID safety level to orange. That announcement from Governor Polis came as a surprise to many. Is that a wise decision, knowing indeed that the new strain is circulating and could be more contagious? I think all these decisions are obviously very complex in terms of trying to balance economics as well as demand and also trying to ensure safety. And so I certainly am happy I'm not the one making those decisions, Um, but it does certainly raise a little bit of alarm in terms of the potential for more spread. It raises alarm. It raises alarm for you specifically and in your medical circles? It does, only again, because I feel like people are tired and um, as good as people are trying to be about following recommendations, if you're given permission to do things, there may be some say, well, you know, if we can do this, we can probably do that too. And so I just hope people take this seriously. And if they do decide to do um, indoor dining, that they follow the rules and still wear their masks when they're in waiting in line and certainly making sure that they still have appropriate distancing. Would you eat inside a restaurant right now? No. <laughs> I do a lot of takeout, and takeout is still fabulous. And I would be happy to take food out and maybe eat it in an outdoor location. But I, I don't know that I'd be comfortable at this point eating inside. Take out another way to support restaurants who we know are struggling at this time. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Dr. Michelle Barron from UC Health. Uh, infectious disease expert. We're talking about this new strain of COVID-19 and the easing restrictions in Colorado today. Uh, Naturally, the question is whether the vaccine, uh, and I should pluralize that, the vaccines, uh, will be as efficacious with this new strain as the old. What do we know? Um, At this time, there's no indication that this has any impact on the vaccines whatsoever, which is a good thing. Um, I think it does sort of raise the question that we see with flu shots every year, that if it changes enough at some point that we might have to have a new vaccine. Um, But right now, the current vaccine seems to be still quite effective. And so I would encourage individuals that are getting access to the vaccine to still follow through and not let this limit their um, thought process and maybe consider not getting it because of this new strain. Okay. So uh, you're urging people indeed when it's their turn to get the vaccine and you think that it will be as effective uh, with B117. Uh, but that's interesting. You you compare it to the flu vaccine, which as we know, 
changes from year to year. The flu vaccine, in a way, is a prediction of which strains will be most widely circulating. And so it could be that COVID-19 efforts, campaigns match that of the flu vaccine each year. It could. I think this is the big question that we don't have an answer to. I think at the current state, our goal is to try and get it to where it either goes away completely or becomes at such low levels that it's no longer considered quite as problematic. But as we've seen with this virus, it's quite unpredictable. And you, as you said earlier, would expect there to be more variations. The question is, does that happen to such an extent that a new vaccine would be warranted? You know, we are getting a lot of questions, Dr. Barron, about the vaccine and specifically, when is it my turn? Uh, How will I find out when it's my turn? Talk to the person waiting for some sort of signal, a call from the doctor, a text from the pharmacy, or maybe this is someone who doesn't have a provider. Uh, The state has very broadly laid out who gets what when. But when it comes down to the individual, like, how do they know? Yeah, it's a great question. I think a lot of people are trying to figure this out because obviously if they want to get it, then they don't want to miss their turn. And so I can certainly speak from the UC Health perspective that we have been uh, identifying individuals that meet the age criteria that have been laid out by CDPHE. And they've been receiving, and because there are so many people, there's, you know, Uh, Just over 75, we identified 44,000 people in our system. Um, So we're talking a lot of people with not necessarily all the vaccine available quite yet. Um, But they've been receiving uh, notifications through their electronic health record um, and their MyChart or their MyHealthConnection, and then being asked to schedule an appointment. We don't have walk-ins at this point. I know other systems have been doing similar things. Um, We understand that some people don't have computer access, and so we're developing alternative ways so that they can be outreached where they'll either get phone calls or their providers will call them. Um, And um, obviously, I think the state is also working on more broadly for that question that you said, what if they're not there? What if they don't have a doctor? And how are they going to be able to access this? I know they're engaging the pharmacies, so uh, they have partnerships with Walgreens and CVS, and so I imagine that also will be forthcoming soon. And I just hope everybody has just moments of patience. This is a lot of um, a lot of work behind the scenes that's going on, and as soon as we have that information, it'll be forthcoming. Well, I'm grateful for your time, Dr. Barron. Thanks for being with us again. Oh, always a pleasure, Ryan. Dr. Michelle Barron is UC Health's Senior Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Pundits and pollsters predicted a blue wave on Election Day 2020. But after all the votes were tallied, it didn't really materialize. Yes, an incumbent Republican president was ousted, but the GOP held strong and made notable gains. While seemingly everyone else missed the mark, a Colorado polling firm, Unum AI, debuted a model based on Internet searches, and it accurately predicted most of the U.S. Senate and House races. It's a little cloudier on one key race, though. Skylar White is founder and CEO. Welcome, Skylar, to the program. Happy New Year, Ryan. How are you? Uh, Happy New Year to you, too. I'm doing well with high hopes for 2021. You correctly called, I think, 98% of the Senate races, 58% of U.S. House races. Not quite as strong there. 
Why is tracking internet searches, do you think, more accurate than other models? Well, I'd like to caveat the 58% of U.S. house races that we predicted correctly compared with um, public survey polling, which is what um, the media and newspapers reported to the public was going to happen. We're only correct 17% of the time. Oh, my goodness. That, that's an important piece of context. Thanks for that. And why is it that you think Internet searches are the key here? Well, it's a much more honest and easy to access um, place to reach people. I think that the problem that I first realized in 2016, in which we saw occur again this year, is that just asking people how they feel about politics is ever more challenging than it's than it's ever been. Um, I think that's due to technology and our 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 methods of communicating with each other, especially about difficult topics like politics. Um, has become ever more challenging. And so people are just more reluctant to talk about it with, uh, with survey pollsters. We have uh, an internet data source, which is the record of how people are Google searching for the candidates. And that's a lot more honest reflection of how they feel. You use the word honest, honesty. Uh, is that to say that when someone gets a phone call, for instance, from a pollster or is asked to fill something out online themselves, you think they're not being honest about who they're voting for? I think that as it's become harder to talk about politics, um, we're inherently less able to be honest with, with, with other people and with ourselves about it. So the place where we're really honest with ourselves is when we're online, when we are researching, uh, when we're truly trying to find factual information about our choices. And that's very indicative of which way people will vote. Well, that's the key. That behavior online tells you something about how someone will vote. So there's a correlation between me Googling Jane Doe for Senate and me voting for Jane Doe for Senate? I'd say it's probably pretty likely because if... Um, you, um, if you're gathering information about Jane Doe, I bet you're not gathering information about her opponent. We like to think of ourselves as being fully open to the options, but what our research shows is that if you're searching for Jane Doe, you're going to vote for Jane Doe. What if it's just that Jane Doe is particularly colorful and says really controversial things? And, and really, you know, what I'm doing is kind of gawking, uh, so to speak. Do you account for that factor? Yeah, we see it happen a lot. We see it happen particularly with Trump, but actually it doesn't really happen outside of Trump too much. Um, the cases that it happens are with celebrities who are particularly controversial, um, like uh, the two congressmen, which were uh, recently pardoned. Um, or when Joe Arpaio, the notorious Tucson sheriff, ran for U.S. Senate, or Chelsea Manning. Those are really the only cases where we can see that that significantly changes how people are searching. But those are few and far between. For the most part, people are researching the candidates that they support and then hanging up the phone. It's kind of like um, what marketing says about if you're searching for tennis shoes that if you get to Nike's website and you find a pair of tennis shoes that you like, you're, you're not going to go to Adidas' website because 
you just have a million other things to do in your life, right? Mm. And I think that um, the way that people are using the internet most often, I think that listeners to your program may not may not fully grasp that they're really informed voters on average, the people who listen to CPR. You're kind to and say that about our audience. But, thank you. Thank but you. You, you, are, you are saying that other voters may act differently and may take, uh, for lack of a better term, shortcuts and that, that that first person they look up, that there's a correlation there between that and their vote. So I, I do want to talk about the presidential race. So you said that people tend to search for Trump, but not necessarily vote for him. Uh, so uh, did your numbers reflect that in 2020? Were you off from the presidential race? Yes, our search data was way less helpful in predicting the presidential race because Donald Trump is surged 16 times more on average in any given day than President Obama was. He's one of these edge cases to our data set, which 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 made it really hard to contend with. But using um, some of the information from that, along with the historical averages, I was able to predict every state correctly except for Georgia in this presidential election. Hmm. Okay, so this didn't work as well thus for the popular vote, but it worked better for the Electoral College. Is that what I hear you saying? It did work, yes. Huh. What if candidates like Trump are the new normal? I mean, that doesn't that mean your approach is sort of shot going forward? You know, we don't think that we have to work for presidents, but that we can add value um, to people's perception about what might be wrong with democracy by giving a really cost-affordable, better data set to journalism. I think that a lot of what people are concerned about with regards to democracy is that their expectations just get so wildly missed by the media and by uh, the polling that they receive since the media doesn't have the budgets to conduct that that, that information gathering anymore. So what we can do is just uh, reaffirm to the public that, you know, um, that there's better data out there. And when there's bad data, people develop conspiratorial theories or think that the election might be rigged. And Mm. we have an antidote to that. Well, that's really important. You're saying that if polling is very off, that is to say, if after election day, there are surprises in contrast to the polling, you think that is the type of environment where conspiracy theories can thrive, that that is a danger, an inherent danger of the polling industry being off. I do. And I, and I think that um, everyone is in consensus that um, the data needs to improve because the expectations are just not getting met any more consistently. All right. Skylar, uh, stick with us. I'd love to pick this conversation up in the next half hour about the future of polling, how this might apply to issues on the ballot, not candidates. So, for instance, ballot measures. And I'd like your thoughts on the future of your industry. Skylar White is our guest, the founder and CEO of Unum AI, based in Colorado, which relies on Internet searches to help give us a sense of political public opinion. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. As Colorado tries to reboot the economy, there's a growing problem for working parents. The early childhood workforce isn't keeping up with demand. 
We're asking child care providers for quality care at a low cost that parents can afford, and that's an equation that doesn't quite work. I'm Jenny Brendine from CPR News. Listen through the month for our series about how Colorado is confronting the challenge of the workforce behind the workforce, or find stories online at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And if you believed some of the polls in 2020, Texas was going blue. Florida was going blue. Those things, of course, didn't manifest. And many were disappointed in the performance of the polling industry once again this past election. We're speaking about the future of this sector with Skylar White, founder and CEO of Unum AI based in Colorado, which instead of calling people up and asking, who are you voting for? relies on internet search trends to, uh, this cycle, more accurately predict the outcome of races. And, uh, Skylar, I can imagine someone hearing this conversation thinking, this is a breach of my privacy. Uh, So when someone calls up and asks me who I'm voting for, I can say whether I want to respond or not. Here, you're tracking my internet searches. Uh, Is that a violation? Speak to them. No, The data is a data source called Google Trends, which is an anonymized aggregation of the total searches for John Hick and Looper versus Cory Gardner in the state of Colorado. And that's what we use to predict is just the aggregate of what everybody is doing. So it's not looking at any individual to see how any individual thinks, but rather just how we as society John Hickenlooper, you mentioned the new senator from Colorado, Democrat, sworn in over the weekend. Would this work for ballot measures? It feels like a really important question in Colorado because we are accustomed to those long ballots with lots of questions for voters that aren't candidates. Yeah, it does, Ryan. It works for the larger issues that people are really interested in. You need to have uh, a a certain level of search interest for Google to report out this. Um, Small ballot measures don't get that amount of funding and and that amount of money behind the campaigns to really make them really publicly well-known. Unfortunately, I think that people vote on those issues with a lot of lack of information sometimes. And we've been doing some pioneering research into looking at the historical trends of how Coloradans think about issues like climate change over the past 15 years. And this is a really unprecedented way to look at how people view issues. It's not 500 people just at one weekend and say, we know our citizenry, but um, we look at people over time and at Hmm. the, the local level of Aurora versus Kim Carroll. So, the, muni- the municipalities, we have we have exactly how, say, climate change has changed in its effect on people's thinking. For example, Coloradans clearly from their search history feel, feel the effects of climate change more than ever in how the state's been um, experiencing fires and natural disasters over the past 10 years. But of course, if I Google climate change, or frankly, back to the ballot measure example, if I Google that issue... It seems to me that it isn't exactly telling you where I stand on that issue or that measure. Um, Yeah. If you just Google Proposition 112, to use an example, from Uh 2018, that wouldn't indicate. But a lot of times people use qualifiers. And so we look at John Hickenlooper and all of the... um, 
all of the ways that people might have negative sentiment towards that and remove out all of that if we're calculating support. So the things that we would remove, uh, you'll remember, were um, John Hickenlooper's uh, ethics inquiry news story mm. um, throughout the summer. So you can see how a particular issue within a campaign, news headline within a campaign, is resonating with people. I, I do think of parts of the state that are less linked to the Internet. Uh, how, what does this mean for the picture we get from urban Colorado versus rural Colorado? It means that we have the best picture of urban and suburban Colorado that we've ever seen. Okay. Um, and we uh, did not see Congresswoman Boebert's ascension like nobody else did. Um, the digital divide is the main thing impacting us. But um, as 5G continues to roll out, and quite frankly, the state and local rural communities continue to push for greater access to broadband, broadband this continues to look like a longer-term solution. What do you say to people who think the polling industry is dead? <laughs> the polling industry will never be dead. Um, it can't be because we need information to make decisions about who to support, um, what candidates to fund, what candidates are electable. It's, it's the basis for the strategic thinking of the entire political, democratic, and governmental process. So unfortunately, I think we're at a point where adapting is, uh, is, is the name of the game. But um, um, just um, wishing this away is not going to solve anything. Skylar, in just a few seconds, how far out were you able to predict these results? I mean, were we talking two weeks, two months, in just a few seconds? I, 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 I predicted Mike Johnston's uh, gubernatorial, 2018 gubernatorial primary vote share one year out. From his uh, from his eventual um, from his eventual primary. Wow, I was in the gubernatorial race. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Based on based on internet searches. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. Skylar White, founder and CEO of Unum AI, based in Colorado, joining us remotely. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. During the pandemic, we've been told to stay at home. But sometimes you need a little fresh air. I've been going to this lovely little park that's a bike ride away from my home. For Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg, it's a hiking trail, a short drive from downtown Grand Junction. Okay, I've just arrived at the Clunker Trail. I've got my jacket on. I've got my ski pants. I've got an old ski pole. Let me use as a walking stick. So there's this narrow little trail, and there's this sunlight just bathing these canyon walls, and it's just so hard to believe that I can be here in like 10 minutes. For the record, I totally should have brought gloves. So I came out here a lot uh, in, in 2020, as the world was getting crazier, this was a place to get away from it, you know? Like, oh, the first case has arrived in Colorado. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, I don't know how to deal with that. Oh, there's no toilet paper. Oh, okay. 
that's, I don't know what to do. But like, this is something I could do. This is uh, my factory reset. <laughs> oh, oh God, no, <laughs> no falling. Part of why um, coming out here means so much to me right now is because I, I didn't know that this would be possible. Um, I didn't know what my life would look like. Back in September, I was hiking far away from here <clears throat> on a lonely peak in Nevada at Great Basin National Park. All of a sudden, I heard this crack and I saw my foot go sideways. It looked like that scene in misery. You know, I, I couldn't walk, you know, for, what, six weeks? Um, <laughs> I live in a two-story house. I, <laughs> I would have to scoot and pull myself up each stair going backwards. I took my first step on election day. It's still a little hard. I still have this limp. I don't know, maybe I'm two miles in. And my foot is starting to protest. But, uh, you know, if you're going to live with me, this is what we're going to do. And uh, the doctor said it was fine to push it. So I feel like um, it's my duty to push it. Here it is, the final climb out. Okay, my foot is screaming. Oh God, come on. No matter how I edit this for the radio, just know it took a really long time. Here we are, three miles. Longer than I've walked in months. Obviously, I have no idea what lies ahead this year. But uh, the one thing I know is that as long as I'm able, I'm going to be spending a lot of time up here. And I just feel so lucky. Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg from the Clunker Trail near Grand Junction. We'd like to know about the place you escape to these days, whether it's a trail, park, or just a different room of the house. And if it's a secret spot, don't worry about sharing the name. Just let us know what you see there and how it makes you feel. You could even call us and leave a voicemail from your pandemic happy place. The number is 303-871-9191, extension 480. 
That's CPR's main phone number, 303-871-9191, extension 480. Or you can write us about this place, Colorado Matters at CPR.org. Bonus points if you want to record an audio file on your smartphone and email that. Again, Colorado Matters at CPR.org. A third Grammy nod for a Colorado choir director. Chris Maunu of Arvada West High School is nominated once again for the Music Educator Award. The school's choir program has tripled in size during his 14-year tenure. Maunu's students have performed at Carnegie Hall, St. Peter's Basilica, and these days from the safety of their individual homes. This is Veni Veni Emmanuel from the choir's virtual holiday show in December. Let's listen back to my conversation with Chris Maunu from last year when he'd been nominated for a Grammy for the second time. Chris, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks C- for Congratulations. It's, it's an honor just to be nominated, right? Isn't that it what really they say? It really is. That's what they all say. Do you feel that? Of course I do. Okay. Yeah. There were um, 3,300 <gasps> initial nominations. Wow. And to be mentioned in the top 10 is really special. You grew up in a small town in South Dakota You say it wasn't the best environment for an aspiring singer and music teacher. So how did you know that that's what you wanted to do? Yeah, like you said, small town, you know, I think that's typical in a lot of places, actually, where you have to play sports to be a part of the cool crowd. And so I did participate in choir and band all the way through school. But becoming a music major just really wasn't even on my radar as a possible career direction. When did it show up? Well, I uh, chose something practical. I, I was a business major in, in college. And Very sensible. Thank you to my mother. She was with me on registration day. That was back in the day in the late 90s where you still had to, you know, sign up. Show up. With a, with a pencil or a pen <laughs> um, and not online yet. But anyway, she made me join the Y'all Come and Sing non-auditioned large college choir. And so I was like, okay, I'll at least do that. Keep something of a foot in it. Yeah. Since I've loved to sing, you know, okay, fine. I'll do that. But Did you end up getting the business degree? I didn't. I had spent that fall semester just getting involved in that choir program. And that was the first time in my life I had been around so many people who were just unapologetically enthusiastic about singing and about music. It was at that point in my life where I finally let myself believe like, okay, this is what I'm really passionate about. And so... I visited the dean of the School of Music right away, second semester, and he allowed me to audition mid-year, and I became a music major and never turned back. Arvada is not a small town, but I wonder if you see your role today as being the encourager you didn't have in South Dakota. Well, that's a big, a big part of my teaching philosophy, is especially for young boys. Um, you know, there's that stereotype that even in a larger school, that it's not the coolest thing to do. And so I'm really proud. I, I think I had about 20 guys in the, the choir program when I, when I started, and now we have over 100. How do you think you've done that? Like, is it, is it what you say? Is it that the reputation itself becomes its own draw, kind of becomes its own magnet? Yeah, I think it's both of those things. You know, um, the choir program is really excellent. And uh, I think it's one of the things that Arvada West High School is known for. 
at this point. And so I, I think people view it as a safer endeavor just because it's, there's a lot of kids in it and mm. it's really good. But also I feel like I, I can relate to all types of kids because since I did play sports and all that stuff and in high school, I can talk football with the, with the men's choir or whatever. So you did wind up doing sports I in did. high school. Yeah. yeah, that was just inevitable yep. where you were in South Dakota. Okay. Um, in 2005, you moved to Colorado and not too long after you start working at Arvada West High School. And w- what keeps you in place for 13 years? I mean, I have to think that you've seen tons of teacher turnover in that time. Yeah, we did something recently at one of our staff meetings, like raise your hand if you've been here for five years or 10 years. And um, I think I'm one of the one of the veterans in that that building. Um, so yeah, there is a lot of teacher turnover, but it's the students. They they bring me back year after year. They they enter my classroom every day, just so passionate, so willing to learn, uh, so bought into my vision and and what I see a choir classroom to be like. They're just incredible, and I really think of this honor as you know a celebration of my students' hmm. fine work because teachers are nothing without amazing students. The honor we're talking about is to Chris Maunu of Arvada West High School. He's a finalist for a music education Grammy. He is the director of that school's choir program. I think it's time to just hear from the kids again, shall we? Uh, Why don't we hear Claude Debussy's Noël des enfants qui n'ont plus de maison, Christmas Carol for Homeless Children, uh, performed by your students. what it's like to be one of your students. What, what, what is something you say a lot when you're up at the front of a class or something you ask a lot? Um, I think one of the biggest things is to be emotionally connected to the music. And how, yeah. how do you encourage that? Well, first of all, let me just say, like, when you're watching a choir perform, it's to get beyond that initial entertainment value. We as choral musicians have a chance to, you know, pierce the hearts of audience with wonderful content or a thought or an emotional idea. And the way that happens is an audience picks up on the fact that students are emotionally connected to what they're doing on stage. And so that has to be practiced a lot in the classroom. You've got to connect the kids to the words. To the words, yeah. Um, But let me first just say that singing in and of itself is a really vulnerable activity. You know, we, we create the sound from within ourselves. And as, as soon as that sound leaves our bodies, it's subject to judgment and criticism and, and all those sorts of negative things. So we spend a lot of time just establishing an awareness of that culture of vulnerability. And we talk about it. We, we do activities where students will anonymously write down their greatest fear. And I'll share those fears with the class. And every time we've done things like that, the biggest fear is that They'll be judged or criticized mm. singing and, or doing something in front of their peers. And so we establish that that culture where it's safe to be vulnerable, be, be emotional. And so... And make a mistake? And make a mistake. 
I feel like your worst enemy is probably Simon Cowell from uh, um, American Idol. God, I can't even believe I blanked on that. But I just think you should give us a chance. But a chance to do what? To improve. Yeah, girls, we have weeks, not decades. There is this culture where, like, some of us are told we can sing and some of us are told we should stop. Mm-hmm. No one wants to hear that, you know. Yeah, I, I hear that a lot, Chris. Do you think that well, that's... I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> um, a lot of kids do, and that's really unfortunate because I believe that everybody can sing. Now, we all... Now, that's interesting. You believe everybody can sing, but not everyone's a good singer. Um. No, but uh, the great thing about a choir is that, you know, you have leaders and there are people who are who are a little bit more talented or, or more confident. And then you have kids that because of the nature of a choir and you have a lot of voices that sort of rounds off those uh, rougher edges and it still gives that communal singing experience. Recently, your choir performed a piece based on a poem that one of your students had written after the 2018 school shooting in Parkland, Florida. Um, I'll have you talk about Hive of Frightened Bees, but let's hear it first. this piece come together? So it was about two or three days after the Parkland shooting, and there was a threat written on one of the walls of our school bathrooms. The threat was that someone is going to shoot up our school. And so the fact that we were already grieving from hearing of the school shooting in Parkland, and, you know, these are high school kids, so peers of my students that were slain in that massacre, it really shook us to the core. And so because of our, our choir room is, is kind of a safe place to be vulnerable, we didn't sing that day. I brought the kids down and, and we talked. And the kids shared their, their anger and frustration and sadness, trauma, fear, all of those things. And Taylor Huntley, one of my students, stood up and, and shared a poem that she had written in response to this. And it just brought all of us to tears. And so I asked her permission if I could share it with a choir director Facebook group I'm a part of. And she gave me permission and I put it up there and it wound up in the hands of American choral composer, Andrea Ramsey. And so we, we talked and we decided that the choir that Taylor was in would do the premiere performance. And so she spent the next next year or so working through that piece and, and constructing it. And we talked a lot about how would we put put together and uh, we premiered it in May of 2019. This idea, a hive of frightened bees, such an evocative image. Last year, you traveled to Nashville to be honored as a Country Music Association National Music Teacher of Excellence. Uh, I understand that was quite a thrill for you. Can you tell us about that night? 
Yeah, very similar to what the Grammys do, CMA does a lot of wonderful work for music education, jump-starting music programs in, in less fortunate schools and so forth. Uh, and they roll out the red carpet, I understand. They do, like yeah. You... So part of what they do is uh, recognize teachers. And so I went to this event in Nashville. I didn't quite know what to expect. And they open the door and there it is. There's a red carpet and news stations are there taking videos and interviewing the, the teachers, as well as about 30 country stars supporting the teachers. What was so crazy about that is they would come up to us, ask to take our picture uh, with them, uh, you know, congratulating us, how much we inspire them. I understand Dirk Bentley came up to you. Yeah. Who has the music festival in Colorado. Right. Yeah. Wow, that's he, cool. He actually hosted that event and hmm. yeah, it was great. Are you a country music fan? I am not. <laughs> no, <laughs> but that's okay. I, I, I don't devalue that as an art form. It's just not my not particular taste. Before we go, the Music Educator Grammy comes with a cash prize for Arvada West. If you win, uh, and again, you've been nominated before, uh, what would you use the money for? Well, for the school, we have a, we have a scholarship fund set up that's for current students who are not financially able to pay for things like concert attire or go on trips with the choir. And I think I would would put that money toward that. Oh, I'm so glad you could join us. Great to be here. Grammy-nominated choir director Chris Maunu of Arvada West High School. He's up for a Grammy for a music educator for the third time. Thanks to the chorus that makes Colorado Matters possible. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Paolo Shalseda. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.